Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, good morning, Covenant. I hope that you all have finished your Christmas shopping because, you know, you don't want to be out there in the next couple of days. You take your life into your own hands, right? Uh, it was, it's good to see uh, the Kerners back. They have been, yeah, they have been in Washington State for many, many months. I think six, seven, eight months now, something like that, uh, ministering to uh, Native Americans on the reservation out there. And it's good to have you guys back. Where are you sitting at? In the backpack. Normally you're over here, so you're switching up on me there. So it's good to have you guys back. You know, in the same way, I just wanted to quickly tell you, uh, you know, we, we've come out of our missions season where uh, we had a missions conference and we just so are so thankful for the way that you have committed to funding missions. I wanted to bring to you this morning uh, a church plant that we are uh, supporting and help supporting in India, you know, for I think about 10 years now, we have been partnering with Ken Tombing in the Manipur province of India. And this is our seventh uh, church plant that we are cooperating with. Uh, this, uh, I'm not even going to try to say the name of the, of the town, but uh, this is, uh, and, it's, and it looks like it's spelled, it's, we would pronounce it, all you sing, ham. Presbyterian Church. That's what it looks like, but I think it's supposed to be all a sanctum, Presbyterian Church. <laughs> and uh, because of your faith promise giving, uh, we've been able to commit a little more than $11,000. Uh, our church, a couple of other sister churches, and what this will do um, is this is going to build uh, a sanctuary for these folks, and it helps pay the pastor's salary for at least the first couple of years to let them uh, let that pastor get established. Ken's got a great uh, way of doing this. He sends out a couple of elders into a village and they begin to do Bible studies and they evangelize. All of these people on this screen are new converts from Hinduism primarily. And when they get a core group large enough to justify it and that can support a pastor or, or at least begin to, to help support that, they will come to us and other sister churches to help them get going. And what's so amazing about every one of these works is you will see this crowd almost double and triple over the next few years when we put a, a, a church in that village and a pastor is able to, to work that village. And it's just amazing what God does there. And so I just wanted to thank Thank you. Uh, let's continue to pray for Ken and and they just do it. They do it right. They're raising up leaders 
from within the church. They raise up the pastors, they train them, they, they sit them through seminary, and they're able to then provide leadership for that local congregation, which then turns around and typically sends out a couple more elders down the road to another small town or village, and they start to work all over again. And it's just great to be able to partner with Ken. Let's pause for just a moment. Let's pray for him and for all you sing to him. Presbyterian Church. Father, thank you that for Ken. I thank you for the work that you have done through him and Ruth and, and just all of the wonderful leaders there in the Manipur province of India. Lord, I thank you for all the men and women and families of this church who sacrificially give above their tithes so that we can support gospel church plants like this one. May you continue to use us so that we can see at the end of, uh, of our 10-year period by 2028, at least 50 churches like this planted in our own backyard and around the world. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So, uh, several years ago, uh, the American Association of Atheists ran this bulletin board uh, all across the nation in larger cities. You know it's a myth, the season celebrate reason, which of course is a play on the, the words that you often see, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season. And so, uh, you know, it, it, I have to confess a little bit here that uh, from a Christian perspective, it can be a little distressing at times to see what happens to the Christmas season in our culture as it's been turned kind of into this frenzy of consumeristic excess. Uh, it's become an opportunity for groups like this to constantly attack, attack, attack the, the story and the message and uh, the most fundamental truths of Christianity. But I would remind us this morning, church, that we are not called by God to become defensive bulldogs for Jesus, okay? That's not in our job description. And so the Christmas season actually provides for us an easy opportunity to interact with people in our family or at work or in our community who are skeptical, who have legitimate questions about Jesus and uh, maybe even at times are antagonistic towards him. And so for those of you maybe who are here this morning or you're watching online with your family, if, if that, that describes you, perhaps you have really you know, sincere, serious questions about Jesus, about the events surrounding his birth or, or his life. And I just want to always extend an invitation to, to give me a heads up. I'll sit around a lunch table with you and, and we'll seriously talk about the questions that you may have. And, and try to provide uh, reasonable answers to them. At, at Easter time, uh, you know, these types of questions that arise normally are, are centered on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? But at Christmas time, it inevitably uh, centers on the virgin birth and the incarnation of Jesus. That's what is in the crosshairs. And so I thought this morning, since our, our annual theme is by faith, right? And one of the objectives of this annual theme is to provide an opportunity for us to circle back and to shore up the foundations of our faith so that we're level set, so that we have those fundamental truths and doctrines of the, of the Christianity established in our hearts and minds. So with that being in mind, I thought this morning it would be appropriate to come back to this idea of the virgin birth. And now for those of us who are Christians, it shouldn't surprise us when questions like this come up. 
And, uh, and, and part of the reason why, and, and I just want to kind of explore this this morning by way of a couple of gospel applications, is that this is what's been going on since the very beginning, right? Since the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, skepticism, controversy surrounded him, surrounded his birth, surrounded his heritage, surrounded his person and his work. Uh, you know, the, the Hebrews were looking for a Messiah. Matthew, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, is written to Jews to help them understand that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah that the Old Testament prophets point to, that he is the one that God has promised all the way back to the opening pages of the Bible. But the Hebrews had a very, while they were looking for the Messiah, they had a very specific expectation of the Messiah. And one of those expectations was his pedigree, his job resume, so to speak, had to have certain boxes checked. And so Matthew is writing to the Jews because they had been rejecting, obviously, Jesus as their Messiah. The original audience that Jesus is ministering to, they, don't, they end up crucifying him and rejecting him. And so Matthew is answering these original skeptics and he's pointing out to them, no, Jesus is the Messiah, you know, contrary to their objections. And their objections were many. For example, they objected to the idea that their Messiah was actually a carpenter. And, and you kind of get that, right? You think that the king who's going who, who's to end up destroying the, the, the powers that opposed them, which they were expecting, that he would come and be some royal figure. But no, he's a very humble carpenter. So when you go to the book of Mark, for example, when, when Jesus begins his ministry in his hometown of Nazareth, and he stands up in the synagogue and he begins to teach, read the scriptures and teach. Uh, the people are amazed in the way he's speaking. And verse, uh, verse two of Mark six says, where did this man get these things, they ask? What's his wisdom that he has been given to him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Ultimately, Jesus will say, a prophet can't have honor even in his own hometown. And he just leaves and he ministers elsewhere because they couldn't conceive of him being the Messiah. He's the carpenter. He's from Nazareth. You know, a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, Brian uh, Lumshu Chan, our assistant pastor, brought us a message from Micah chapter 5. Christy mentioned it this morning. That prophecy that said the Messiah has to come from Bethlehem. So how could Jesus be the Messiah? He's from Nazareth, right? Not, not recognizing the, the truth of the entire story that, oh no, he was actually born in Bethlehem. But for many, this was an obstacle. And then you see something else at play. Um, Certainly in subsequent centuries, but I think the, the seed of it is in this original audience. In John chapter 8, when Jesus is uh, talking to the Hebrews, to the Jewish leaders, and he's actually in an argument, a debate with the Pharisees and the other leaders, and, and they're so proud of their heritage, they're so proud about being children of Abraham that they're blind to their sin, and Jesus essentially says, you guys are not children of Abraham, you're illegitimate children. And you can, you can fill in that blank there for our, our little ears, right? And so the Jewish leaders, they get angry and upset and they say, we're not the ones who are illegitimate and i.e. you are. And so 
you know, there's an insinuation here and, and there's a debate back and forth where were those Jewish leaders touching on the fact that there was a question all the way back then about Jesus's parentage, that he was the child of illegitimacy. Certainly within, a, within 100, 200 years in the Talmud and other Jewish writings, they bring this up and they say, and one of the reasons why Jesus could not be the Messiah was he was the illegitimate son of a perverse woman, right? And so they attack his, his heritage. So in the, in the first 17 verses of Matthew 1, uh, Matthew is addressing these early doubters by establishing Jesus's physical credentials that he actually is a descendant, a direct descendant from David. But in verses 18 to 25, he's moving from the, the physical descendants to the spiritual and the theological reasons why we should accept Jesus as Messiah. In successive centuries, the skepticism and the attacks and the objectives, objections against the virgin birth have always centered on this, on the miraculous, on the, the theological and spiritual aspects of Jesus' birth. Uh, in, in the Enlightenment, and in coming out of the Enlightenment, these objections will, will come across as mockery and scorn, especially from the rationalist who have fallen in love with science and, and the, the just objection overall to the idea that things could happen within nature that are not bound by natural law, that the miraculous could even happen. And so in the Enlightenment and out of the Enlightenment, you see this movement among the rationalists. You, you read it in men that we're familiar with, like Thomas Jefferson. In 1823, he writes, the day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with with the fable of the generation of Minerva and the brain of Jupiter. Now, for those of you who didn't have a classical education, he's referring to one of the other birth mythologies because there's many mythologies in the pagan worlds of a God being born in some supernatural way. But of course, there's very big differences between those stories and Jesus, because in every one of those stories, for example, it, it, it entailed a God coming down, taking on human form, and oftentimes even raping a woman in order to bring about these types of things. Very, very big differences between those stories and Jesus. But out of that, because of that rationalistic movement of the Enlightenment, you began to see in the 1800s a movement into the church, into the seminaries, and to, uh, among those who make the study of Scripture and language and biblical languages and things their life's work. And, and so this liberal, a liberal movement, a theologically liberal movement began. And it's had devastating results. For example, back in, uh, right, right at the turn of the century, a survey was done of over 7,000 uh, Protestant pastors. And they were essentially asked many questions, but one of them was, do you believe that the virgin birth actually occurred? Or do, do you believe that the virgin birth is a myth? And you can see on the screen the percentages of American Protestant pastors who believed that the virgin birth is just simply myth. It's not true. 19% of American Lutherans, American Baptists, 34%, 44% of Episcopalians, 49% of Presbyterians who aren't PCA, I should point out. That's us, PCA. This was the main denomination. 60% of Methodists. 
believed, Methodist pastors at least 20 years ago, believed that Jesus, the myth, is all a myth. See, see, what happened was essentially this. Out of that movement of the rationalism that moved over into the seminaries, you saw this liberal movement begin, especially around 1870, and it grows. It started in Europe, then it comes over to the United States. Most things that get us in trouble start in Europe and then come to the United States or start in California and work our way back. I don't know, but anyway, that's what happened. It started in, in Europe and then came over. And, and a, a real, a really a, a, a battle for the soul of the American church began. Conservative uh, pastors and theologians began to, to write articles and books defending the Christian faith, but the, theo- the liberal theological movement, it took over all the major seminaries in the nation. There was only a couple left that were not infected by this. Books were written like The Fundamentals of the Faith by B.B. Warfield and in order to defend the faith But there was one man on the other end of the spectrum, on the left, a man by the name of Harry Emerson Fosdick. Uh, uh, Harry Fosdick was a a, a Baptist pastor who began to preach in First Presbyterian Church of New York City. And and he was an extremely popular uh, preacher. Uh, the, The church would just be filled up on Sunday mornings. They offered multiple services as the city would come to hear him. And in this congregation was, of course, John D. Rockefeller, who was extremely wealthy. In 1922, Harry Fosdick preached a message, shall the fundamentalist win? And in that message, he preached uh, against the virgin birth and against the miraculous. John D. Rockefeller is so impressed by this sermon that he personally pays for it to be put into booklet form and sends out 122,000 copies to every known pastor and church in America at that time. In In that message, Harry Fosdick says this, the virgin birth is not to be accepted as an historic fact. To believe in the virgin birth as an explanation of great personality as one of the familiar ways in which the ancient world was accustomed to account for unusual superiority. In other words, Jesus was a great guy. And how did those, you know, ignorant, you know, people in the past who clearly are not as smart as us account for this? They make up stories and myths like a virgin birth. That influence within American Christianity has continued. If you go out on the internet and you just start Googling virgin birth, you will find blog after blog after blog by college professors denying this idea of the virgin birth. And honestly, their objections are as stale as the bread from the 16, 17, 1800s when these objections were first raised. Right? And they've now grown actually kind of uh, incredibly aberrant. There's a woman by the name of Jane Schaberg. She teaches at a Catholic university. She wrote a book in the 1990s, The Illegitimacy of Jesus, a feminist theological interpretation of the infancy narratives. Boy, if the alarm bells don't start going off right now, you know, you're not paying attention. And so what she does in her book, she asserts that the, the conception of Jesus was in all likelihood the result of rape and sexual abuse, and that the heroine of the story is Mary, who's trying to overcome the stigma of sexual abuse. And in later centuries, in order to reestablish male patriarchal dominance, they created the 
virgin birth story. You kind of knew that's how that was going to end with the title, a feminist theological interpretation of the infancy of narrative, right? You knew that was coming. Listen, these attacks continue. Um, Now they take the form of this this dogmatic pseudo-intellectualism. You you find popular authors, you find specials done on the History Channel, and, and they all beat the same drum that the virgin birth itself, this whole story, was a doctrine that was later developed many, many years after, centuries even after the death and burial of Jesus Christ. And nothing could be further from the truth, church. See, that's, that's what's so amazing in all of this. All of these assertions by people who have PhDs and university educations and all that, do they just not read original writings from the first century? Are they just that blind that they won't even consider what was written you know, within the first generation after the apostles? Apparently, they ignore it. Justin Martyr, he, he wrote defenses of Christ uh, in around 150 AD, right? So we're talking about, you know, about 50 years after the apostle John has died. And in, in his defenses of Christianity, he, he writes about the virgin birth. And it's interesting, he quotes from the early church father, Ignatius. Ignatius ministered around 105, 108 AD, that's in that, he was a direct disciple of the apostle John. So Jesus, John, Ignatius. That's a pretty good line of authority, right? Here's what he wrote. For our God, Jesus the Christ, was conceived in the womb by Mary, according to a dispensation of the seed of David, but also of the Holy Ghost. In other words, he had a parentage that was in the line of David through Mary, but his father was God himself. He was virgin born. This is the early church. This was not some late doctrine that the church created in order to to justify itself. Now we can ask, well, what's the big deal about all this? I mean, okay, so there's skepticism. There's allegations made. Why does the subject really matter? How come it's a big deal? I would suggest to you that another Jewish man really encapsulates why it's a, a big deal. How many of you remember Larry King? Raise your hand. Yeah, a lot of you do. You're older, uh, young people. Back when CNN was worth watching, there was a guy on every night by the name of Larry King. And he had a great program where he would have people come on and he would do wonderful interviews and people from all different spectrums of the political life, of religious life, society would come. And and adult conversations actually occurred. And it wasn't just people screaming, talking points at each other. And he was on for decades and Larry King was very well respected. He was not a believer, but he was a phenomenal interviewer. It was just an excellent program. One day, Larry King is being interviewed. And the interviewer asked him, of of all the people in history, if you could choose to just interview one, who would you interview? And here's this Jewish non-believing man who says, I would like to interview Jesus Christ. And then the interviewer said, well, well, what would you ask him? If you could only ask him one question, what would the question be? And Larry King replied, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. He nails it. He gets it. 
You see, B.B. Warfield in that book, The Fundamentals, when it comes to the virgin birth, would write, the supernatural Christ and the supernatural salvation carry with them by an inevitable consequence the supernatural birth. In other words, and this takes us to our last application this morning, without the virgin birth, Jesus is neither worthy of worship nor is he qualified to be our savior. This is, this is foundational to Christianity. It, it and the resurrection are on the same level of importance. It's not like one is lesser than the other, one's optional, one isn't. Without these key truths that form the foundation of our faith, we do not have Christianity. It's illegitimate. Verse 20 says, after he had considered this, Joseph An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, hey, next week, we're going to continue kind of this shoring up foundations theme. And, but we have a, a great guest speaker next week, uh, Dan Henley, who was pastor here for 24 years, is going to come and he's here on vacation and he's preaching for us. And he's going to go to the book of Acts and he's going to revisit the idea of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and, and the importance of the Holy Spirit to the Christian life. This passage puts before us one of the main works of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's interesting how he's involved in the birth of Jesus. Um, in, in the book of Luke, in the parallel account, it, it's worded a little bit differently. When the angel, here, you know, Matthew, the angel's talking to, to Joseph. In Luke, it's the angel and Mary. And the angel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and overshadow you. Uh, this is the language of Genesis. Remember Genesis chapter one? We looked at it a few weeks back. The the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of creation and of the earth and all is chaos. And then from him comes this great creative ability and power where everything is brought into existence. This is the same language that's being used here with Jesus. This Holy Spirit is hovering over Mary. And just as he had the power to create the universe as we know it, he has the power to create life human life within this virgin. To all the rationalists who just think this is impossible for the virgin, how arrogant can Thomas Jefferson have been? I mean, he says he believes in God, yet God is not, the God who has created the universe, which he would admit, if for some reason is not powerful enough to create life in the womb of a virgin. That's the height of human hubris and arrogance to ever say, oh, well, God couldn't do that, right? As if we know better than God. That's just pride. And so the Holy Spirit, the scriptures tell us, he superintends, he creates this human body. Jesus is not created. The second person of the Trinity is not created at this point. God the Son has existed for all of eternity. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have always been one God in three persons, but now, the Holy Spirit creates a human body a human, so that Jesus can enter into this world, Emmanuel, God with us. And in doing so, he's 100% God and 100% man all at the same time. This is a big deal. 
If it's not true, what does it mean? It means that when Jesus was born, he was tainted by original sin, just like the rest of us. In other words, Jesus was born a sinner, just like every one of us. It totally disqualifies him from being our savior. It means he could not be God because God could not be tainted and cannot be tainted by sin. The virgin birth is why this has to take place. It's a big deal. If he's not born of a virgin, then he's disqualified from being our savior and church. Every one of us are still dead in our trespasses and sins. Our need for a savior is great. You see it in the name itself, Jesus. That word Jesus from the Hebrew is Yeshua or Joshua, and it means Jehovah will save. We're born in need of salvation, and Jesus is that one who comes able to redeem us. But the virgin birth is not true. We don't have a savior. Jesus is a liar. He's a fraud. I mean, just think about it. The end of Matthew, Jesus is giving the commission to his disciples, what we call the Great Commission. And what does he say in those verses? He says, lo, I am with you always, even into the end of the age. I will always be with you, with you. I will see you. I will be here for you. I will give you my power, my authority. In other words, I will live forever and be with you forever. If the virgin birth isn't true, he's just a liar. He's a fraud. Okay? But if it is true, wow. Verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know, this passage you know, putting the virgin birth before us, Matthew says, it's important because it actually proves that God fulfills his promises and his prophecies. In verse 20, verse 22, he has this little phrase, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is an important phrase to Matthew. He will use this phrase 50 times in the book of Matthew, five times in this one chapter always showing to these original Hebrews and to us that the prophecies that were made about the Messiah, they find their fulfillment only in Jesus Christ. And one of those prophecies is that he would be born of a virgin. It comes from Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Liberal theology will come to this verse. It's so clear. How do you explain this away? You do it through poor scholarship. You say, oh, well, the word virgin there doesn't really mean virgin like we think of virgin. It just means a young woman. That's not what the word means. The word that Isaiah chooses, the word that Matthew chooses, it always means virgin. Like we think of virgin. It's not some metaphorical virginity here, people. It's literal. And that's what is brought to us. So in Jesus, what you find is multiple prophecies, not just the virgin birth, but multiple ones being, being fulfilled. Several decades back, a man by the name of Peter Stoner, I always liked that last name, especially because he was the chair of a college, university math department. Stoner and math go in hand in hand, I think. 
Um, you know, he, he was the chairman of math and, uh, and um, astronomy. And I think it's Pasadena University out in California. He was a Christian and, and he got a bunch of other Christian mathematicians together. They formed, a, I guess, a Christian, uh, I wanted to say geek association, but no, no, a, a, a Christian mathematical association. I'm saying that laughing at Jonathan because he has a major in math, right? And uh, they all come together. And one of the things that they take on is they say, what does math tell us about the Bible? And, and they start taking all of the, the prophecies and they apply mathematical probabilities to these prophecies. And some of the conclusions that they came up with are really fascinating. For example, they concluded that um, if for one man to fulfill eight, eight of the Old Testament prophecies, the odds, the probability was one to the, in 10 to the 17th power. In other words, one in 100 quadrillion, okay? Now for some of you, that's very exciting. For those of us who are not mathematically bent, that means absolutely nothing, right? So thankfully, uh, Dr. Stoner understood that, that some of us are not bent that way. And so he gives a great illustration of what one in 100 quadrillion means. He said, imagine the state of Texas. Take silver dollars and uh, cover the entire state of Texas in silver dollars two feet deep, okay? So that's roughly about right up to here. He said, now take one of those silver dollars and put a, a, a mark on it or like a red X, put it out there, mix all the silver dollars up, take a guy in Houston, blindfold him, send him out, say, start walking. You can only pick one silver dollar. The odds of him picking that one silver dollar with the X is one in 100 quadrillion. Okay. That's, one, that's one man fulfilling eight Old Testament prophecies. How about 48 Old Testament prophecies? Well, now that's one in 10 to the 157th power. Massive. Church, Jesus fulfills over 300 direct prophecies or prophetic implications given to us in the Old Testament. This is God. This is God in the flesh, virgin born, untainted by original sin, uniquely qualified to be our savior. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. The Lord's Supper is that meal given to us by Jesus to remind us of these things. You think back to Genesis. We've been in Genesis for much of the ministry year, right? And we know the story of, in Genesis chapter 2, that God establishes a covenant of works with humanity. If you obey me, you will have eternal immortal, immortal life. If you disobey me, you will die. And we know the story there, right? Our first human parents, they sin. And that because of sin, death comes into the line of humanity. And, and every one of us dies now because every one of us is tainted and polluted by sin. Every one of us sins because we're sinners. But in the garden, God gave that promise. We've talked about it quite a bit in Genesis 3. 
that the seed of the serpent will ultimately be crushed by the seed of the woman. Eve was given a promise. There will come a descendant from you who will ultimately undo all that this sin brings about into creation. And so Jesus, thousands of years later, takes on human flesh. He had to take on human flesh, church. The covenant of works was made with humanity. Human beings broke the covenant of works that needed a human being to fulfill the covenant of works. There's been one human who has perfectly obeyed the covenant of works, Jesus Christ. Which means he, uh, out of all of humanity, has earned the right to be immortal. But our God, as much as he's holy and just, is also gracious And the beauty of the gospel of which this meal points to is he takes that perfect obedience of Jesus and he applies it to all of his children, enabling all of us to have eternal life. That physical human life is important. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of this. In the the story of the Lord's Supper, we read some, some important words. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, my body, physical body, broken for you. And then, after the, in the same way, he took the cup after supper. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The the physical body of Christ would have to be broken on the cross. The physical blood of Jesus would have to be shed on the cross. Someone who was absolutely perfect human had to be on the cross to pay the penalty of humanity's sin. And at the same time, he had to be perfectly 100% God because only God could satisfy the wrath of God towards sin. There's only been one person in all of human history who is 100% God and 100% man as Jesus. And that happens because of the virgin birth. This morning, as we take the Lord's Supper, you're all welcome to take it with us if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this meal is not for you. This meal is meant to encourage you to turn to Christ, to embrace his life and receive it as your life. His death, receive it as your death so that you could have your sins forgiven. And so if you've not given your life to Christ, I really want to encourage you. If you have questions and are skeptical about Christ, I want to encourage you, do the business of talking with us. Let us sit down together and let's explore your questions so that you can settle once and for all whether or not you belong to Christ and are trusting in him. For those of you who are here, if you know Christ, you don't have to be a member of our church to take the Lord's Supper, but we do ask that you have been approved either by the elders of our church or by the leadership of some other church 
and take, in order to take it with us. So children who've not yet had this done, parents, we ask you to, to use this as a teachable moment to help them understand how the Lord's Supper points to their own need for salvation in the Lord Jesus. We're not passing elements because of COVID. You have these underneath your chair. If you haven't picked it up yet, there are two layers to it. Take the top layer off and that will get you to the bread and then the next layer will get you to drink. Before we take it together, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you tell us that whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So therefore, a person should examine himself and eat of the bread and drink of the cup in that way. So we come to you, Lord, first, confessing to you that, yes, we are sinners, that this week, We have broken your law, your word and commandments intentionally and unintentionally, knowingly and even unknowingly. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that your body, your blood, your death on the cross and resurrection and ascension to heaven was so powerful that all of our sins, known or unknown, the first to the very last that we will ever commit, they are all under the blood and forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, you've separated them from you. You will remember them no more so that we stand before you, Father, as loved children based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you left the glories of heaven. You entered into the pain of human existence. You lived life just as we have lived it, just with out falling to the temptation of sin, yet your temptations were so much stronger and violent than ours, yet you said no. Thank you for living that life. Thank you for being a a Savior who is familiar with our struggles, who even right now is on the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. You understand our frailty. You know that we are made of dust, so that even as we come to a table like this this morning, We come and we have to confess our sin to you. Thank you that those sins are forgiven. May we honor you with our lives. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Every time we eat and drink, we do remember his death until he comes. Church, eat and drink together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. May we honor him this week as we enter into our Christmas season and we are sometimes distracted by all the things that can be involved in it, both good things and maybe things that aren't so good. Would you help us to keep our focus on Christ, on your son who you gave to us, who did not think it too much to, take, to leave the glories of heaven, but rather would humble himself and take on the form of a servant so that one day you could honor him and he would be named Lord of all. And for this, we praise him. We praise you, Heavenly Father. We ask that you would be in our midst as we continue to worship you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.